You guys can go ahead and turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to continue. Really, we're going to kind of wrap up this discussion that we began last week on the churches, our church's position as it relates to spiritual gifts, not so much broadly, but some specific areas of spiritual gifting. And I want to just sort of build some of that discussion out a little bit further before we transition into uh, the next uh, section, or actually the section that's our springboard passage that we'll kind of dig into with more detail as we think about these matters. Uh, Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 27 through the end of the chapter in just a moment. I want to remind you, though, as I introduced this discussion last week, um, I read to you from the section of our church's doctrinal statement uh, under really the broad doctrine of God, you have the, the doctrine or you have the, the, the paragraph, if you will, on God, the Holy Spirit. And it's in that section that I want to read just a smaller excerpt from it to kind of get our thinking started again around this subject. Under the heading of God, the Holy Spirit, this is sort of the, the last uh, paragraph or near the last paragraph, I believe, of that section. Uh, again, among other things, the doctrinal statement describes Uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But then it sort of concludes that section by saying this, the Holy Spirit bestows spiritual gifts by which believers serve God through his church for the perfecting of the saints today. Gifts such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and the working of sign miracles in the beginning days of the church were for the purpose of pointing to and authenticating the apostles and prophets as revealers of divine truth and were never intended to be characteristic of the lives of believers. So within the context of our doctrinal statement as a local church, this brief summation that I just read, this really summarizes or encapsulates what is now commonly referred to a cessationist view of spiritual gifts, particularly miraculous or sign-oriented gifts, and we've talked about that, and we'll kind of elaborate that on that a little bit more as we go forward. It's really a view that essentially says this, that there are certain unique gifts given to certain unique people in a certain unique time for a certain and unique purpose. That's essentially one summation of the view. And so when that certain unique purpose was accomplished within that certain unique time through those certain unique people, the associated certain and unique gifts were no longer operable, or in other words, they ceased their operation. Now, that's to say that the gifts and these people and that time and that purpose were not commonplace. That, that's, that's an essential marker that I want to keep in mind as we think about this, as we continue to think about this and understand what we're seeing in Scripture. These things were not commonplace. They were certain, specific, unique. They were not the norm, in other words. They were not ongoing or they have not continued unabated from that time until now. That's the principle. That's the sort of the core understanding of a cessationist view of 
the more sign or revelatory miraculous gifts. And admittedly, as we alluded to a little bit last week, but I want to kind of elaborate on it a little bit more today. Admittedly, this term cessationist carries a bit of a negative connotation, doesn't it? What do you mean ceased? What do you mean gift ceased, right? I mean, it can be a little bit of a provocative term in and of itself before you even talk about what you might mean by the term. I like what um, Tom Pennington says in his book, A Biblical Case for Cessationism. He says, quote, unfortunately, the cessationism label didn't come from an advertising agency trying to present the position in its best possible light. The label itself is inherently negative. Imagine starting a football team in the Philippines and calling it the Manila Folders. That name clearly doesn't encourage anyone to cheer for the team. But the greater problem with the label cessationism is that it can be and often has been caricatured as believing that the Holy Spirit has ceased working altogether. Some have unfairly accused cessationists of putting the Spirit in a box, suggesting He no longer has the power to work supernaturally or perform miracles. Cessationists have been charged with holding a, quote, unbiblical, outdated, enlightenment, enlightenment view, end quote. Just for those of you who are a little bit fuzzy on your history and recollection of some of the tenets of the Enlightenment era, the Enlightenment period, that's really just a reference to the rationalism of that era, that we, that man has the reasoning capacity to ascertain truth in and of himself. That's why there's a reference to the Enlightenment here. So in other words, there's a little bit of a, an, uh, you might say a caricature or maybe a, a slight accusation by those who are continuationists they would accuse those who are cessationists of sort of having a, an enlightenment hangover. They brought enlightenment thinking into their doctrine and theology. Okay, And that's a pretty, I'll just go ahead and say that's a pretty damning accusation. I mean, there's a lot to uh, condemn in the enlightenment as it relates to our understanding of the revelation of God's word. Okay. So, he goes on to say, we are unjustly labeled as modernists who refuse to accept the supernatural. Others flippantly declare that we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. As though we have replaced the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, with the Scripture. We have also been labeled Bible deists, meaning we worship the Bible, believe only Satan performs supernatural works, and claim our interpretation of Scripture is infallible. Even more shocking is we have been accused of preaching the Bible instead of Christ. Jack Deere writes this, and Jack Deere is a, a proponent of continuationism, and he advocates against cessationism quite, quite uh, commonly. And uh, He says this, Bible deists preach and teach the Bible rather than Christ. They do not understand how it is possible to preach the Bible without preaching Christ. Their highest goal is the, important, is the impartation of biblical knowledge. Their highest value is being biblical. Actually, they use the adjectives biblical and spiritual more often than the proper noun Jesus in their everyday speech. End quote. This really gets at the heart of what is at stake in this debate between 
cessationists and continuationists. And with that quote that I just read and really the larger quote from Pennington that I just read, this, this really gets at what, what, what's at the core. What is it that constitutes normative, everyday operation of the Holy Spirit amongst the people of God in the life, fellowship, and ministries of the church? How, how, do, we, how do we ascertain that? What, what, should we, what should we understand about the Spirit's working in the life of the church? What does God expect of us? What should we expect of God? What does faithful, powerful spiritual life look like individually and corporately? So, in other words, this is not merely the stuff of sort of arcane doctrinal debates amongst pinhead theologians. You know, this is not the, the fodder or the, the clickbait of you know, theology blogger, bloggers and podcasters to try to draw listeners and readers of their material about these hotly debated topics in Christendom. This is a very pastoral church and body life matter for every believer. The implications of how we understand this particular issue of these kinds of gifts in the life of the church inform a lot of who we think we are, what we expect of God as normative, what we believe is obligatory of us to be faithful to God and what he's called us to, how we interact with one another in the life of the church, how we understand uh, um, spiritual authority and apply that authority in our lives. It, it, it goes on and on and on and on. This is a, an incredibly significant discussion. This is about the body of Christ. This is about the mission and purpose of the church. And the empowering work of God amongst his people. And this has been the Apostle Paul's emphasis throughout this entire study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it continues as the emphasis in the verses that we're looking at right now, verses 27 to 31, that's serving as sort of the backdrop of this discussion that we're having about our church's position regarding spiritual gifts. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, starting in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's where he starts. He has been talking about the nature of the body of Christ as being comprised of many diverse parts, but unified in the spirit as one body. And that there is no part that's more important or significant than the other, that everybody has a gift that they are to use to build up the body, for, to use their gifts for the common good. And so there's this diversity and this unity in the spirit in the body of Christ. And then he, he begins this sort of summation section by just saying, you are the body of Christ. Like this, this is about you. This is about who you are. In other words, he, he is emphasizing this principle of identity. Not just sort of what we do or what our preferences are for when we gather together. You're the body of Christ and individually members of it. And then he goes on. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, 
and various kinds of tongues. And then verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And then he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the transition now into verse, into, excuse me, into chapter 13. Now, again, we're, we're going to dig into this section and do a verse by verse study of it. But for now, just to remind you, I've sort of entitled this, this survey of the church's position on spiritual gifts, a cessationist position. I've entitled this section of our study, All Are Not Apostles. This is based upon Paul's series of rhetorical questions that begin in verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? So he begins asking these rhetorical questions. Now, last week, I kind of highlighted the fact that there's, there's a different uh, translation that you would find, for example, in the in a New American Standard Bible, the New American Standard translation. The New American Standard uh, uh, frames up these rhetorical questions like this. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And the reason for that, and I think that that's, that's possibly a better way to understand what's in the text, actually in the Greek text, because you have in, that, in those phrases, in those rhetorical questions, the particle may in the Greek, and it is a particle of negation, to, to negate something. Do you guys remember back in the 90s? This word, not, was made really popular by the Academy Award-nominated, really highbrow, culturally sophisticated movie, Wayne's World. Anybody remember that? Wayne's World? Yeah, there you go. See, I love giving out these pop culture references because it exposes your debauchery. You know, I get people to say, yeah, I, I love that movie. Wait, wait, you love that movie? But no, yeah, that was back in the 90s. I mean, that was my thing. Tim, I'm not saying you're debauched, okay? I brought it up. It's my fault. But that this term not was brought up. It was this, this, this word that was used in the 90s, and it was sort of this form of really blatant sarcasm. You know, it's just, you just simply add it to the end of a sentence. And, and it actually, if you go to the highly reputable and reliable Urban Dictionary for your, your, your understanding of terms... It, you, it actually quotes a, a line from the movie that says, what a totally amazing, excellent discovery. Not. Well, interestingly enough, now I'm not arguing that the Apostle Paul was the inspiration for Wayne's World. But interestingly enough, in the Greek text, that's what you have here, actually. It, I don't, I'm not saying it's also intended to be sarcastic. It's rhetorical. But it's the same kind of construction in the Greek text. It really, literally, if you just did a transliteration, it says, all apostles, not. All teachers, not. All miracles, not. That's, that's the Greek transliteration, if you will, of these sentences. So, so this statement, uh, or excuse me, this, this borrowing uh, from the text, this title, all are not apostles. I'm, I'm doing that intentionally because... Major elements of the cessationist view are are sort of backdropped by this understanding of the purpose and work unique 
work of certain people, namely apostles and prophets, but we're going to just kind of shorten it to apostles for, for the sake of our discussion, given unique gifts for a unique purpose in a unique time. Okay? Now, we talked a little bit about this last week and how the apostles specifically were a part of laying the foundation of the church, of the New Testament, New Covenant church, of bringing the gospel of repentance and salvation in Christ, this this massive next move of God in His redemptive plan and bringing out the consummation of Christ's work to bring salvation. Okay, And you have, actually, the Apostle Paul in the letter we're studying, and I, I misstated last week, I think I was trying to remember where this was found, I think I said chapter 4. It's actually in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul speaks of this unique function or role of the Apostles, of himself in particular. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. This unique function that the Apostle Paul is highlighting. And remember, we see this writ large in the second letter to the Corinthians, but it's already percolating in this letter where the Apostle Paul's ministry and message is being questioned and undermined. And what you find on numerous occasions in both of these letters, but with great emphasis in the second letter, is the Apostle Paul defending his apostolic authority and ministry and exerting the authoritative nature of his message. Okay? So you can't, like, separate the entirety of the content of these letters without understanding this is what's going on. The the Apostle Paul, as the called, specially called, Apostle to the Gentiles, called and commissioned by the resurrected Christ himself, the authority of his message bringing the gospel first to the Gentile world was being undermined, called into question, seeking to be thwarted in significant ways. And he's emphasizing this foundation is the foundation. I laid it. No one else can lay any different foundation. In other words, if anyone comes along and seeks to lay some other kind of foundation, it is not the true foundation. This is distinct. My message and my ministry is distinct. The works among you are distinct. Okay? You see this sort of elaborated upon a little bit more, and we read from this last week, but just to kind of further the point, as we think about the Apostle Paul as an apostle to the Gentiles, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, and then uh, further in chapter, uh, actually I didn't copy and paste the the, the other ones in in chapter 3, but I'll turn to them. Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 19 to 20, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, the Gentiles have been brought into the household of God as members of his new church, his new people. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then in looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and I forgot to put this in my notes, but I I definitely don't want to skip over that. If you look at Ephesians chapter 3, you see this unique uh, nature of the apostolic calling and message even more emphasized if you look at verses 4 and 5. When you read this, he says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So in other words, the Apostle Paul, this is just to emphasize the, the reality of uniqueness, unique calling, unique function, unique purpose. And it's not just unique in that it's like, oh, that's, that's really a nice, unique color on the wall. It's foundation laying unique, okay? You can't like repeat it. It's not a repeatable kind of, of idea that's being conveyed here, or principle that's being conveyed here. In other words, the apostles were called to lay the foundation of the church, and in that alone, it highlights their uniqueness. But it goes further. They were also uniquely empowered with authenticating signs. And we talked about this last week, just to reference again from the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12. He says in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So not only was the apostles work and calling unique in that there was a foundation laying responsibility and calling that he executed upon bringing the gospel, the message of salvation to the Gentiles through Christ, but also the apostles and Paul himself in particular was given unique powers, unique miracle powers, unique sign powers that served to authenticate him as an apostle, as the man of God, as one bringing a message from God. It wasn't just that he was called, but that he was given unique powers during this time of laying the foundation of the church. And then you have this this recognition in the New Testament that this was in operation in a unique time for this unique purpose. And we referenced this last week, but I just want to continue to to highlight this, this this uniqueness of, of person and time and purpose and gifting. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, it says, Therefore we must pay close, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Note this term attested in, in verse three, toward the end of verse three, and it was attested to us by those who heard. This is an aorist tense verb. It is a snapshot of a finished action, in other words. So the nature of even the language here, the textual uh, language here is a looking back on something that happened in a given point in time. 
And, and the purpose of it is all wrapped up in these few verses in Hebrews. It's, it's a call to Jewish believers. They're writing to Jewish believers and saying, we, we, we can't escape if we neglect such a great salvation as this. And, and, and here's, here's how you know this was a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord himself. The ministry of Jesus himself. It was even attested to us by those who heard. How? While God was bearing. You could actually translate verse 4, not as also bore witness, because that's a present active verb there. It, it's in the past, this was attested to us, while in that time, God was bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So you have this, this clear foundation-laying time by foundation-laying called apostles, given attestation-type sign gifts and miracles and workings of power to authenticate the message that they were bringing. And again, going back to what I said about the, the fundamental questions that are in view for us is what is to be commonplace? What is to be normative? What should we just expect as this is the normal course? And I would just argue that if you look at what I just sort of briefly summarized, you can expand this significantly. But if you look at what I just briefly summarized, and I think I've said this in the past, I caution anyone to minimize the significance of what God was doing in the first century during the life and ministry of Christ and subsequently the work of the apostles and laying the foundation of the gospel and the building of the New Testament church to somehow attribute to all the characteristics of that as somehow common for everyone? To not view it as like this, something special was happening here. And to me, this is part of the Achilles heel of this continuationist presuppositional viewpoint, the, the mindset, the presuppositions that sort of frame up the thinking. Because I think the same thing happens when they tend to look back, for example, at Pentecost. You, when you have a whole movement, Pentecostalism, that's based upon this idea that we are called in our day and time to be exhibiting the works of the Spirit that were extant at Pentecost. That's the, the fundamental nature of Pentecostalism in general. And so you go back to Pentecost and you're like going, wait a second, really? Like, does that not just diminish the significance of what was happening like then at Pentecost by me coming along and saying, yeah, I'm an apostle too. I do the same things Peter did. I, I'm just like Peter. I'm just in the 21st century. I, I caution anyone to adopt anything resembling that kind of mindset when you go to Scripture and you start looking at these unique works of God during unique seasons of time. It's a strong statement to make that this is this is common. This is to be normative for us. This is this is this is this is now what life in the body of Christ is all about. Signs and wonders and healings and miracles all the time, everywhere you look, and prophetic utterances all the time, everywhere you look. That's that's what it means to be a Christian. That is a diminishment, in my estimation, of what God was actually doing during those periods of time. And I think it's not just a diminishment based upon my sort of 
individualized assessment, I think that you have these scripture references that are saying, this was a unique time. These were unique things that were happening for unique purposes. They're not called on to be commonplace and just repeatable. So last time I began to give you a few, in addition to sort of that, that foundational backdrop of, of, of season and time and person and unique giftings and for attestation of the message, I, I gave you a few more sort of reasons or a rationale for, for sort of understanding, for the church's understanding, our church's understanding of these uh, sign gifts as having ceased. And the first one we talked about, and again, I, I have a few more things I want to cover with this, but not much. I want to get to this last one that I had to kind of give short shrift to last time. But the clear and observable pattern of God's intervening revelatory work throughout redemptive history would indicate that the gifts have ceased. And really, we just talked about that. We sort of looked at the Old Testament and noted that there were certain periods of time Really, in the in the four thousand year history of Old Testament history, you have two primary periods of time where God was using miracle works, works of miracle power, like He was intervening into time and space, and really altering natural law, turning it on its head, as a major move of His redemptive plan in the time of Moses and Joshua, and then Elijah and Elisha. Those are the two primary times that you have in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and it's the time of Jesus and his ministry in the first century building of the church with the apostles. And so what you see is you sort of survey the expanse of biblical history and the biblical narrative is you see this episodic indication, this, this momentary period of God intervening in these unique ways. Again, going back to the idea of you know, if everything's a miracle, then nothing's a miracle kind of idea, right? I mean, it's like if everything's that way, then what's so special about it, in a sense? So you have that just you just have that as part of the biblical record. That's not to say that that because that's what God did then, then he must necessarily do that now. But it is to me an important observation to kind of right size our thinking about the nature of God's tendency toward miracle working power amongst his people because the nature of them are so grand, the scale, the, the moving sort of nature of the narrative as God's people, and we consider the wonder-working power of God to intervene in history graciously and miraculously in the ways that He has done to even bring us to a point where we have responded by His grace in faith, receiving the gift of salvation in Christ and our eyes have been opened and we have fellowship with the one who made us. Like we go back and we look at these things with wonder and joy and and a sense of revelry for the, the mighty works and power of God. And it can loom much larger in our minds from the standpoint of frequency and how long it was going on. And it, we just need to have that sort of right size for the standpoint of understanding this. 65 years. Moses and Joshua, about 65 years, Elijah and Elisha, and then 65 to 70 years, depending upon you know, how you want to count it, with the ministry of Christ and the apostles. Out of the whole span of history, that's what you have. Now, again, as I said last week, not only do I not believe I can put God in a box, the idea of that is just laughable to me. 
God can do what God wills, as he wills, when he wills. But in terms of understanding what we should envision as normative, as common, this should impact our thinking. This should inform our thinking. So it's, it's this clear and observable pattern that God intervenes at, at periods of time, for seasons of time, to accomplish amazing purposes that have significance in His redemptive plan that is sovereign and known exclusively and primarily to Him until He chooses to reveal it. And along the way, the, the, uh, the operation of attesting signs and wonders and miracles is associated with that revelatory period. God is revealing Himself and His plans and His purposes and His judgments in meaningful and significant ways. That's what's going on. And so the associated work of God and intervening in power in those times is understandable. So you have this this understanding of this from the standpoint of history. And then you just also look at at the New Testament era with the ministry of Christ and the apostles. And as we said last time, we're talking about something. If you, if you look at the, that Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, and you're going, wow, incredible. But you come to the time of the ministry of Christ and then the apostles, unprecedented. Nothing like it. We can't even fathom what was taking place during that time. The types of miracle working power the, the volume of healings, entire cities healed of all diseases, completely eradicated. We're talking about a first century medical era where life expectancy was nothing like we have it now. Medicine was nothing like we have it now. Surgical practices, diagnostic practices, none of that was in play. And all of a sudden you have this man come on the scene and people are growing limbs. Eyes are being opened. They've been blind for life and everybody has known it. And not only that, but it's happening in mass. As a sign that this is a man sent from God. And then it continues on into the laying of the foundation of the church. And it's unprecedented. The volume the amount, the significance, the import. And then there's this, as we said last time, this apparent diminishment of these attesting signs. And even during the writing of the New Testament, we looked at a few examples. You don't, you don't have, as, as, as the, the chronicle of New Testament literature continues on, you don't, you don't have this emphasis upon signs and healings and that kind of thing. You have people that are, Paul leaves Trophimus sick somewhere. He like leaves him. Like, he didn't heal him. I mean, that's rude. Right. Um, just indications like that. Again, these are observations from the text, but it's like, what, what, what's that about? So you have you also have it's also kind of worth noting. And I didn't mention this last week, but in the chronological sort of writing of the New Testament letters, you don't you don't hear any mention of spiritual gifts past first Corinthians. And first Corinthians was one of the earlier letters. Like, think about this for a second. The Apostle Paul is writing two letters to Timothy and one letter to Titus. And these are called the pastoral epistles. He's writing instructions on leadership 
and shepherding the flock of God in these locales. He's, he's bolstering their, their faith and their courage and their, the gifts that they're to be uh, delivering and using. And he's also talking about very practical matters as it relates to the church and how it should function and leadership in the church and, and these kinds of things. And there's no mention of spiritual gifts as sort of common, operable kinds of things that should be going on. And, you know, Timothy, make sure that when you're having your prophetic session of your worship time that you do it this way. None of that is there. It just, it's just an, 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 a unique silence on that. Now, I'm not arguing from silence. I'm just making the observation. There, there seems to be the, you know, sort of textual support in the absence of these things in, in letters that are intended to be instructing leaders in how to conduct ministry and worship and leadership and discipleship in the life of local churches. And it's silent. There's nothing there. It's interesting and I think worthwhile and important note on that front. Well, then last time we also kind of rushed. I don't know if you recall. I go back and listen to these things. And I'm like, man, I, don't, I didn't do a very good job managing time. I'm in the middle of quoting something, and then I say, oh, no, it's 1027. Uh, it's only 1012 right now, by the way, if you're checking your watch. But the final point uh, that I, I had to kind of uh, cut short, that I wanted to kind of expand upon just a little bit, so that we kind of wrap this up with a nice, hopefully a nice bow, if you will, and then move on into our sort of our study of the actual text next time. I mentioned as sort of another rationale or argument for supporting a cessationist view is the clear and acknowledged discontinuity between New Testament and contemporary sign gifts. Simply put, what's happening today is not the same. That's discontinuity. And I I began to read a, a rather lengthy section of an article by Phil Johnson, which is entitled, You Might Be a Cessationist Too. I've kind of trimmed that down because there's a big portion of it that I didn't get to. So I want to kind of pick that discussion up. This idea that what we're seeing today is very different than what was taking place in the early church in the New Testament and certainly very different than what we saw in the Old Testament moves of God in miracle working exhibitions of power and authentication of God's message by God's man. Listen to what Phil Johnson says. He says, evangelical charismatics, especially the reformed variety, do not really believe there are apostles today who have the same authority as the apostles in the early church. Some may use the term apostle, but they invariably insist that the apostleship they recognize today is a lesser kind of apostleship than the office and gift that belonged to the apostles in the first century. Now, think through the implications of that position. By arguing for a lesser kind of apostleship, they are actually conceding that the authentic original New Testament gift of apostleship has ceased. Every true evangelical holds to some form of cessationism. We all believe that the canon of Scripture is closed, right? We do not believe we should be seeking to add new inspired material to the New Testament canon. We hold to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, delivered in the person of Christ and through the teaching of his apostles and inscripturated in the New Testament. We believe Scripture as we have, as we have it is complete. And those who do not believe that are really are not really evangelicals. They are cultists and false teachers who would add to the word of God. 
But notice this. If you acknowledge that the canon is closed and the gift of apostleship has ceased, you have already seeded the heart of the cessationist argument. That's not all. Most leading Reformed charismatics go even further than that. They freely admit that all the charismatic gifts in operation today are of a lesser quality than the gifts we read about in the New Testament. For example, in Wayne Grudem's book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament, and today, probably the single most important and influential work written to defend modern prophecy, Grudem writes that, quote, no responsible charismatic holds the view that prophecy today is infallible and inerrant revelation from God. He says charismatics are arguing for a, quote, lesser kind of prophecy, end quote, which is not on the same level as the inspired prophecies of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles, and which may even be and very often is fallible. Grudem writes, quote, There is almost uniform testimony from all sections of the charismatic movement that today's prophecy is impure and will contain elements which are not to be obeyed or trusted, end quote. Jack Deere, former Dallas Seminary prof turned charismatic advocate, likewise admits in his book, Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit, that he has not seen anyone today performing miracles or possessing gifts of the same quality as the signs and wonders of the apostolic era. In fact, Deere argues vehemently throughout his book that modern charismatics do not even claim to have apostolic quality gifts and miracle working abilities. One of Deere's main lines of defense against critics of the charismatic movement is his insistence that modern charismatic gifts are actually lesser gifts than those available in the apostolic era, and therefore, he suggests, they should not be held to apostolic standards. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a second. That's awfully convenient, right? I mean, if you can sort of redefine gifts to fit what's actually happening... Just do the math on that argumentation. There is no truly objective standard at this point. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Again, consider the implications of that claim. Deere and Grudem have, in effect, conceded the entire cessationist argument. They have admitted that they are themselves cessationists of sorts. They believe that the true apostolic gifts and miracles have ceased, and they are admitting that what they are claiming today is not the same as the charismata described in the New Testament. In other words, modern charismatics have already adopted a cessationist position. When pressed on the issue, all honest charismatics are forced to admit that the gifts they receive today are of a lesser quality than those of the apostolic era. Contemporary tongue speakers do not speak in understandable or translatable dialects the way the apostles and their followers did at Pentecost. Charismatics who minister on the foreign mission field are not typically able to preach the gospel miraculously in the tongues of their hearers. Charismatic missionaries who charismatic missionaries, excuse me, have to go to language school like everyone else. Now, I want to stop there for a second and call your attention back to what we looked at when we studied the advent of, of this new Pentecostal movement that sort of hit our shores at the turn of the 20th century. And just draw your attention to this important historical fact. That was a group of people that began to believe that we needed as Christians to recapture 
what was taking place in terms of the operation and work of the Spirit in these magnificent, miraculous exhibitions of of spirit power that we needed to recapture those as God's people in the life of the church. And during a session of a prayer meeting, there was a woman who began to speak, quote, unquote, in tongues. This woman was sort of, and then other people sort of joined in into the process. This woman, it was believed, was speaking in Chinese. She was also asked to write down what she was saying. And so she began to write down these characters that were supposedly Chinese. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, there might be a little bit of time that might pass before verification of these things can take place. But in today's time, imagine how immediately that would be fact-checked, right? Okay. As it turns out, to no one's surprise, it was not Chinese characters that she was writing down, nor was it the actual Chinese language that she was speaking. Nevertheless, prior to that discovery, that, that movement of neo-Pentecostalism, they began to advocate for sending missionaries to the mission field without them going to language school because they would be equipped with the spiritual gift of tongues. They actually sent missionaries to foreign fields where they could not communicate with other people. And the entire enterprise was invalidated on those lines. Now, I say that to say the original sort of influx of this kind of thing were really sort of the the seedlings of this kind of belief and practice was to recapture the same kinds of giftings that were at Pentecost. This adjustment model to a lesser kind of gift was part of a transition into it's different. Whatever it is we're doing, it's not the same. Whatever it is we're saying we're advocating for, it's not the same in its actual manifestation. It's an important note from history. Uh, Phil Johnson goes on to say, if all sides already acknowledge that there are no modern workers of signs and wonders who can really duplicate apostolic power, then we have no actual argument about the principle of cessationism. And therefore, all the frantic demands for biblical and exegetical support for cessationism are superfluous. The real gist of our disagreement boils down only to a question of degree. In a very helpful book, Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit, Thomas Edgar writes, quote, The charismatic movement gained credence and initial acceptance by claiming their gifts were the same as those in Acts, as I just said. For most people, this is why they are credible today. Yet now, one of their primary defenses is the claim that the gifts are not the same as those in the New Testament. And faced with the facts, they have had to revoke the very foundation of their original reason for existence. This, to me, is a profoundly important fact to recognize. There is a caveat to every purported exhibition of some type of sign or miraculous or supernaturally empowered healing or that kind of thing. There's a caveat to it that it's not the same. It's just not the same. The other thing I would just simply note Actually, I'll I'll do that with this final point. 
It's final point. It's 1023. I'm keeping time. <laughs> there is this clear prevalence of disorder, false doctrine, and unbiblical spiritual authority within most continuationist churches and movements. Not all. Uh, don't hear me say all. Uh, there are exceptions. There are always exceptions. But I'm just here to tell you, in most charismatic or continuationist churches and movements, there is no shortage of disorder. Disorderly worship, in other words. One of the very things the Apostle Paul is decrying in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 against the Corinthians. A disorderliness. Not being intelligible. Not serving to be a faithful witness to the unbeliever who comes into your midst. So there is this common tendency to emphasize emotion and equate passion and emotional fervor with an authenticating and even a necessary evidence of the Spirit's activity within the church. The calculus goes something like this. Those people just don't love the Lord. Why? Because they're more stoic in their demeanor. Really? That's all you needed. All you needed to determine whether or not I truly love the Lord is some type of external observation of emotional fervor or passion. That's all it takes. But there is literally a conflation in the minds of many in this movement that their emotional fervor and passion is the same thing as the work and movement of the spirit within them. And it's just coming out and that's all it is. So therefore, what does that say about them when compared to, you know, Joe, Joe hands in his pockets over there, right? Again, I'm not trying to sort of like make fun of people and their external practices. I'm saying it is utterly and completely foolish, even dangerous to give so much credence to one's own emotions for any reason, in any context, emotions need to be subdued and informed by what is true all the time. When you feel anxiety, when you feel anger or rage, when you feel excessive euphoria, all these different things tend to not pan out according to the way that you feel in the moment. I'll give you a great example. Just think, we just passed our, our, the Christmas season. Think of the child that can't wait till Christmas because they can't wait to open this gift that they're almost certain they're going to get. And the, the time comes and the euphoria and the enthusiasm and the anticipation just builds and builds and builds and builds. And then the time comes and they open the gift and they play with it for five minutes and they set it aside because they're distracted by something else or they want to play with someone else's gift that they got. I mean, that's just a simple, almost a silly example of what I'm talking about, that our emotions have to be brought into subjection to what is true all the time. So to make the, the broad leap of emphasizing emotion as a validating indicator of authentic spiritual activity in life, that's dangerous at best. The common attribution of disorder in the assembled church to the work of the Holy Spirit is another problem. 
What I mean by that is that disorder, chaos in the assembled church is attributed gladly to evidence that the Spirit is at work. Disorder is how the Spirit operates amongst His people. Chaos. Like, I'm talking like social and interactive chaos. Not intelligibility. Nothing like that. It's common. It builds up and it builds up. And it stands to reason if you start with the emotional piece of it and you continue to build on that, then these things start to happen. There is this common attribution of strange and even silly ideas to the words from the Lord. People willingly will attribute words of God. I got a word for you from the Lord. And then what comes out of their mouth, you're like going, would God really say something like that? Like, really? Forget whether it's true or not or whether it aligns with Scripture or not. It's just like there's a silliness to some of the ways that these things are communicated. It's childish. You see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 talking about putting childish things away. He in, in, for, in Corinth, he is going after their immaturity. You, you see that from the beginning all the way through. And so there's just this, this elevating, like the, 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 the lack of wisdom and discernment of elevating childish silliness in people's utterances as though that's a legitimate word of the Lord. Like that's how God communicates. The God who actually made language can't even string together a better sentence than that. I know I'm being a little bit passionate about it, but this is really about defending the name and nature and character and wisdom and sovereignty and power and authority of Almighty God. Not diminish Him by saying things like, I have this thing in my mind. Someone is dealing with someone who has a red dress. I literally saw that on a video yesterday. And, and let me just tell you, the moderating pastor said, that sounds to me like a word from the Lord. This was in the church, by the way. This was in Sam Storms' prior church. Sam Storms is a respected proponent of continuationism. I'm, I'm not talking about, I wasn't looking at some kind of, you know, crazy video. I was talking about mainstream continuationism. Silliness. Lack of discernment. It's 1029. The emphasis upon speaking rather than listening concerns me greatly. There is a premium given to those who speak. But in Scripture, the psalmist says, Be still, cease striving, and know that I am God. In James, the tongue is a fire. The whole world is set on fire by it in our irresponsibility. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. These are the highest virtues for the believer. But there in, in the continuationist movement, you'll see it. There's this emphasis and, and priority on we've got to say something. We've got to speak something on behalf of God. And then the final one, which I could, there's more. But there is a common distortion of complementary roles of men and women in the life of the church all the time. You will see a female-dominated church in many continuationist churches. Dominated. 
you'll see men there that are just kind of standing by and watching and going, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm here because the wife's here. It's, it's a complete subversion of what God has called men to be and women to be in the life of the church. And you'll see women exercising spiritual, direct from God authority over men all the time in the life of the church. Again, a lot more can be said there. It's now 1031. Lord, dismiss us in your grace. Have a good rest of the morning. Goodbye.